0: Hi everyone, I'm Myra Thomas and welcome to The Buzz from Bank Automation News, where we explore how automation technology is transforming the banking industry. This is our weekly wrap for what's happening in the industry this week. And before I begin, I'd like to give a big thanks to our sponsor, Pay It Off. Thanks so much for your support. I'm pleased to be joined by Associate Editors, Lorraine Lawson and Jasper Kalra. It's July 9, 2021, and here are the biggest news items from our editorial team this week. In an executive order sign, uh, signed today and released in a press release by the Biden administration, uh, there's stepped up efforts to promote competition in the American economy, according to this uh, statement. Uh, The announcement coming out of the White House is basically an announcement saying they're going to be stepping up enforcement efforts on problems in key markets like healthcare and FinTech uh, and technology, looking to bring further antitrust actions via the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Also his executive order mentioned net, uh, restoring net neutrality as well as upping uh, protections for consumers and allowing them to take their data from one financial institution to another. Basically, the office is going to, uh, the White House is going to be establishing a competition council which will be led by the director of the National Economic Council. Uh, Lorraine, maybe you could talk a little bit about the story that you wrote and your deeper dive into the executive order that was signed.
1: Sure. So the executive order reads sort of like a thesis. It lays out historical reasons for why he is making each suggestion. And when it came to financial services, uh, he pointed out, the, the Biden points out in the executive order that the United States has lost 70% of its banks that it once had over the past two decades. That's around 10,000 bank closures. He points out that communities of color are disproportionately affected with 25% of all rural closures in majority minority census tracts. Um, Many of these closures were the result of mergers and acquisitions, they add. Uh, The claim also states that those subject to federal review, federal agencies have not formally denied a bank merger application in more than 15 years. That's a a long time. So in the course of our lifetime, Myra, maybe not just Prince, but in the course of our lifetime, Uh, we've seen 10,000 banks lost in the U.S. So the point that the the, the thesis that they're making then is that excessive consolidation raises costs for consumers and restricts credits for small businesses and then can harm low-income communities as a result. And it notes that branch closures can reduce the amount of small business lending by about 10% and lead to higher interest rates. So um, based on that, The conclusion is that it is hard for customers to switch banks, uh, even when they have choice, which they have less choice. Uh, So to decrease that cost, they are uh, requiring or going to require that banks open up data and allow consumers to take their data with them, their transaction data. So it's open banking at a whole new level.
0: Yeah, that's got to be big news in and of itself, I would imagine. The, the data announcement. Um, so, you know, what does that particularly mean for a consumer, I wonder?
1: Despreet, you had some interesting thoughts about that based on what's happening in UK, right? They've already done this there?
2: Right. So the UK has a pretty extensive open banking regulation system there and already where a customer, when they choose to move bank accounts, it becomes the financial institution's responsibility to move that data as well. But that has not necessarily led to a higher attrition of bank customers. So it'll be interesting to watch what sort of benefits come out of it. But one question I do have here is, will this also in some ways spur banks to introduce new offerings or make it more lucrative in order to sort of their customers back make it more inertial so to say.
1: You know I have to think that it's going to be hard for banks to argue that this would this is a difficult thing for them to do so I I think it would almost have to lead to them wanting to keep their customers and acting to keep customers more but on the other hand it can't be that hard to do because they're opening up much of that data already to third-party providers via API. So to say that they can't communicate with another bank seems like it would be disingenuous. Yeah,
0: it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. Another story that we looked at this week, uh, we looked at Stablecoin issuer Circle, and their uh, look to go public via a, a merger with a special purpose acquisition company, Concord Acquisition Corp. Uh, Circle announced that the deal value would be at about $4.5 billion, with Circle shareholders owning 86% of the firm upon completion of the tra- transaction, which is set to happen by year end. Jaspreet, maybe you can talk a little bit more about what stablecoins actually are and why, and I know people often confuse them
2: with cryptocurrency, but why they're less volatile than that. So stablecoins are a type of cryptocurrency, whereas cryptocurrencies are not pegged to anything in terms of say like how stock is to a company's production revenue, et et cetera, but stable coins are pegged to say the U S dollar. And what a company essentially does is issues this pegged form of cryptocurrency to customers in exchange for their U S dollars or any other fiat currency. And they have they become like a very, Sort of popular entry point to the crypto landscape. Say, if you want to interact with services like decentralized finance, a lot of that runs on the basis of stable coins, and that's why I think Circle is looking to also tap into that opportunity and build this infrastructure, which allows them to grow the ecosystem.
0: So basically, stable coin is a cryptocurrency, but it's pegged, so it has a non-volatile price versus Bitcoin, which is volatile. Yes. Okay. And so, you know, what's the potential for Circle after this?
2: I mean, go ahead. Yeah. So the cryptocurrency space has grown exponentially over the last year and a half. And you've seen a lot of retail investor interest. We've seen a lot of institutional investor interest, both in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and also in the extended decentralized finance space. And what I think Circle is really trying to do is on the one hand, eat into some of that payments business. And on the other hand, eat into some of that business, which is driven by that interest to interact with services like decentralized finance. another pitch that Circle makes to its users is that instead of parking their funds in a savings account, which offers about 0.1%, Circle has this product called Circle Yield, wherein if you park your USDC there, you get between three to 7% annual interest. So it's a lot of factors combining each other with each other, and Circle's really may, looking to make the best of that opportunity. I mean, Circle or say USDC, which is the stablecoin Circle issues, is the eighth largest cryptocurrency by market cap, and there's about twenty-five billion dollars of it in circulation. Wow,
0: I mean, I I think what uh, Circle raised like four hundred forty million, uh, I guess, in one of their recent funding rounds, and uh, I yeah. think that w- that was a, pr- a record, if I'm not mistaken, in, in crypto land. Mm-hmm. I, and this, that was a major raise. Yeah, what does that signify? You know, as far as Circle versus other players, I, you know, are there other major players in the stablecoin sector?
2: Yeah, so the other major stablecoin issuer is called Tether, and they're even bigger than Circle. I think they're the second largest cryptocurrency in circulation, or the third largest, depending on how Ethereum's doing. And but with Tether, there's been some regulatory concerns recently. As I said. A lot of stable coins are backed by dollar reserves or other sort of M2 money supply instruments. But Tether has not had a good history of disclosing exactly what their reserves are backed by. So New York attorney general had also opened an investigation into Tether, which is why Tether lost some of its sheen it's come under regulatory concern. So I think Circle is really pitching USDC as like the regulated alternative to it. But at the same time, commentators have raised similar doubts about what backs Circle. For example, in its investor deck, Circle says that majority of its yield product is collateralized by Bitcoin. And Bitcoin being as volatile as it is, if it decreases substantially in value, it could also have an impact on the yields Circle offers on its products. Okay.
1: I was just ready to move my investments out of Beanie Babies. <laughs> so I, I did have a question before I did that. So overall, they've raised $711 million in funding. Uh, Why do they need to go public via SPAC if they can raise so much money?
2: Well, a few reasons. I mean, I think you can only tap into so much VC funding. And on the other hand, there's a lot of interest in the cryptocurrency space right now. So why not go public? And, And then I would say some of the reasons companies choose SPACs versus an IPO is that SPACs are really much faster. So one analogy that I have heard that really fits into the picture very nicely is that a spec is like a Las Vegas wedding versus like a properly scheduled wedding. Now, Las Vegas wedding might be as good as a regular wedding, but at the same time, sometimes things can go really bad in a hurry as we saw happen with an electric truck company last month that some of their orders that they had put up on their investor bag didn't really materialize, which led to the collapse of that company. So, I mean, on the one hand, it offers a quicker route to say public markets and marquee investors who can help you raise a lot more funding. Circle has committed investments of four hundred and ten million, if I remember correctly, from in in pipe investments. So that really helps them raise that money with accredited investors. But at the same time, if the core business model doesn't work out, yet again, Las Vegas wedding.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the benefit of a spec is that, I mean, they've been around for years, but I guess the reason why now, more so than ever, I guess just going a traditional IPO route is because of the market volatility. And like you say, the ease of doing it, because specs have been around for God knows for decades. Um, But anyway, folks, that that wraps us up for this episode of the weekly wrap. I want to thank everyone for. Tuning in and listening to the wrap. Uh, I'm Myra Thomas, and thanks everyone. Uh, meet you next time here. Thank you so much for joining us on the Buzz. Here's a look ahead for the stories we're working on this coming week. Um, I'm working on a cross-border story, looking at cross-border payments and how AI is actually helping out in those transa- transactions. Uh, Lorraine, what's on the front for you? What's on the coming? i front?
1: talked to. Sorry, I've talked to Jack Henry about what they're going to be focusing on for their next year. They just started their, they do a fiscal year that starts in July. So I talked to them and I talked to National Indianapolis Bank, uh, Bank of Indianapolis, I'm sorry, uh, about their plans for automation going forward. Just free, what's on tap for you?
2: So it's earnings seasons again. So I'll be watching how banks report their earnings. The special focus on this product called robo advisors, which have been pretty popular in recent times.
0: Well, for more podcast content, check out bankautomationnews.com and search for The Buzz from Bank Automation News on iTunes and Spotify.